Welcome. You're listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. This is your host, John Marchalero, and this week my guest is Professor of Astrophysics at Princeton University, Dr. Joe Dunkley. Joe, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm going to give you a short introduction for the listeners. You are a professor of physics and astrophysical sciences at Princeton University. Your research is in cosmology, studying the origins and evolution of the universe. Yay! You hold a PhD in astrophysics from the University of Oxford in Great Britain, and you've been awarded the Maxwell Medal, the Fowler Prize, and the Rosalind Franklin Award, among others, for your work in the cosmic microwave background, which we will get into in part two of the show. <laughs> Thanks. I'm Thanks very impressed. Uh, so before we get into your research in the second half of the show, I wanted to ask you, as I ask all my guests, how you became inspired to become an astrophysicist. Tell me about your story as a young person and what turned you on to astronomy in Great Britain. Yeah, I can. So so I didn't, I wasn't actually the kind of person who who knew from a young age I wanted to do it, actually. I, what I loved was maths. I just, I, I loved numbers. Um, and that was my favorite subject as a kid. Um, but then gradually I realized that I could use, you know, math to, to answer questions about the real world. And I realized that physics was probably the thing I liked doing. How old were um, you when this was happening? This was kind of maybe I was 16, 17. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so I decided to go and study physics at, at university. Um, I got there and I kind of got exposed to some things about, you know, the universe. We did. I studied relativity for the first time. So thinking about how things, um, you know, uh, time passes differently depending on how fast you move. And that seemed just wild and crazy to me and really cool. Um, and I gradually got more enthused about astrophysics and realized that I wanted to use my, you know, mathematical tools to answer questions about space. So it a, took me a while to get there. I have a question about your um master's degree. I read that you have a Master of Natural Science degree from Cambridge. Was that an integrated bachelor's degree and master's, as we call it in the U.S.? Can you t- explain that to me? That's right. It's, a, it's I think it's similar. So it's a four-year degree um, that, you know, you go in at the end of high school and then you come out with a, you know, with a joint bachelor's and master's. Um, but perhaps differently to um, to the U.S., you're studying just science from the very beginning. Um, and so I, I studied physics and chemistry and mathematics from the start. You don't chemistry. do anything else. Oh. Chemistry, yeah, a year of chemistry, um, and uh, a year of chemistry, um, and then I specialized more in physics and and maths um, at as I as I progressed through. Were you ever a science fiction reader? Did that play a role? I asked that of all my guests. Yeah, not so much actually, not so much. Um, I like, you know, I, I like I like it well enough, but it wasn't it wasn't a great passion of mine. But it was so I, I really it took until I started. I think I did some more serious um, studies of astrophysics, and then also I started doing a research project towards the end of my degree, and I and I got my teeth stuck into kind of uh, computer coding for the first time and trying to you know look at data and answer questions, and I realized that I really love that kind of puzzling out you know, thing that you can do with real data and using computer code as well. That was new to me. Great Britain isn't known for particularly clear skies like the desert southwest in the U.S. We tend to associate Great Britain with cloudy skies and rain, watching Wimbledon and all that. That's um, right. So yeah. did, that, did that not play a role because you were more interested in coding and computers and the theoretical part of it? 
Well, a little bit. So it took me a while to get there. So I think I hadn't ever, you know, yeah, like I grew up in London. So yeah, mm-hmm. um, clear skies were not were not the thing that I got. To <laughs> um, but I did actually go, I wasn't, I, I finished my degree and I wasn't sure what I wanted to do after it. And one of the things I did do was I went backpacking across South America um, and, you know, completely separate from any studies. And I do, I, you know, I had quite an important experience when I was, you know, in the middle of nowhere, I was reading actually some popular, popular science books and the skies were incredible. I was in the, you know, desert. Is this chilly by any chance? It was very close to, you know, well, the wonderful thing is it was, it was actually in, in, in Bolivia, um, in the Bolivian desert, which I didn't know at the time, but turns out to be really close to where the telescope I now use is that is in Chile, just over the border. Um, and, so I think the combination of finally being able to kind of really see these amazing skies, seeing the stars and reading about um, reading about kind of fascinating science ideas. I was reading um, Brian Greene's The Elegant Universe. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Classic. Yeah, exactly. And I was just it really that 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 was a, that kind of really made me think and it made me think, mm, I, you know, maybe I should be doing this more seriously. Did you struggle with Olber's paradox? I. Uh, yeah, I, I guess, to be honest, I didn't think about it so much. <laughs> Over's paradox is why the sky is black at night. Yeah, no, yeah, it's, yeah right, that's right, exactly. Why Why is this, Why is the sky not completely full of stars and right, right. Uh, all the from stars? Um, I didn't think about it at that time. I guess I thought about it later when I started sort of studying it more in earnest. Um, yeah. So after you got your master's, was it just definite that you were going to go on for a PhD, or did you ponder something else at that point? Because... Sometimes there's a break between the two. Yeah, I definitely had a break. I, I left my master's thinking I didn't want to be a scientist. Um, oh, I thought really? I would. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought what I wanted to What caused that? Well, well, I think a couple of things. One was that I'd actually spent some of my summers uh, during my degree, actually, uh, you know, I didn't do the typical thing that a scientist does, which is do research projects. I actually, you know, went backpacking uh, you know, in Southeast Asia and South America. And I, and I actually worked, you know, volunteered for, for a couple of NGOs and I, and I thought I wanted to actually work for a foundation or a charity. Um, and I, you know, yeah, I, I, I thought that I wanted to do something useful in that respect rather than necessarily do science. And I also had the impression that scientists, I don't know, worked, were a bit lonely, worked by themselves. I didn't really yeah. see it as it wasn't really that I didn't see myself as being a scientist. I saw myself as being, you know, doing something more working with people, working on projects. I didn't know at the time that actually doing science, the kind of science I do now means working with these fantastic teams. I just had no idea what, what it involved. So what drew you back into the PhD work? Well, a couple of things. So one of the things was this experience, you know, in South America, kind of realizing that I really love these new ideas of new science ideas that I hadn't seen before. But actually, the reality was that I did start working for a, for a, um, a, a charity during this year after my degree. But what I did every sort of late afternoon evening was I went to teach maths. I didn't tutor maths to high school students you know, to make a bit of extra money and at the end of my work day. And I realized that that was the hour of my day that I enjoyed the most. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that I really, my brain loved just doing 
numerical things and thinking that way. And I realized that, I've, you know, other things I maybe thought were interesting actually didn't drive me as, as well. So I kind of put these different pieces together and I thought, oh, maybe actually, <laughs> maybe I should be doing science. Um, and so I applied for a PhD. Um, even then, actually thinking that I might then go and do something like science communication or something with that. I didn't I didn't go into it thinking I was definitely going to kind of be a researcher from that. I went into it with quite an open mind. Yeah, young astronomers struggle with lots of different things as you did. It can be lonely. Uh, sometimes uh, you have a difficult time with your your PhD committee, uh, struggling to find a proper thesis. Tell tell me how you. This is always interesting. I haven't asked a guest this before. How did you back into your PhD thesis? Because it's sort of a mystery for some people about how you get to a PhD thesis that you and your advisor agree on. How did that work? Well, it's actually a little different in the UK that. Um, that you actually apply to do a particular thesis project. Oh, you have to already know. Kind of, yeah. Uh-huh. So, so the advisors will advertise projects that they think will be interesting. And they won't be, like, extremely well-defined, but they will have a, an area. Oh, it's so, good to know. Yeah, it's a bit different. So I, I had actually done this small piece of research as an undergraduate in this area, um, and I thought that's, you know, I thought that's, that was an area that I'd like to continue in, which was in the cosmic microwave background. Um, and so I, you know, talked to his potential advisor in Oxford where I went and, and, and he did, he ended up being my advisor and I, you know, was a fantastic advisor. Um, but I did, I, I applied direct, you know, I went into my, my PhD knowing that that's actually who I was going to work with and what roughly what I was going to work on. And that was modern methods for cosmological parameter estimation. What a mouthful! Can you explain that simply or no? <laughs> um, yeah. So what we were doing was um, uh, we we we're looking at. I was looking at light from the the earliest picture of the universe we have, um, and and we decode it to try and pull out these numbers that describe the universe. So we try and figure out very like broad brush numbers like how old the universe is how fast is it growing what's it made of on average like how dense is it on average and um, how much of it is made of atoms that we already know and how much of it is made of atoms or particles that we don't yet know of um, and so my job was to sort of change you know you could sort of imagine you've got you know a handful of different uh you know knobs that you can dial to change mm-hmm. the, the universe um, and my job was to kind of search through billions of different universes until I found one that 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 fit the data that we actually observe. Is this stuff as simple as the Hubble constant, trying to figure out the age of the universe and the Big Bang point and so on? Or is it more complicated than that even? It's a combination. So part of the information is, is the Hubble constant, the expansion rate. But I was trying to explore in more detail, like, what kind of features were put in at the beginning of the universe that then could have grown to make the big cosmic structures? Or are these the classic six constants from Dr. Davies? These these are the... um, um, So this would be things like the Hubble constant and and describing the initial features of the universe. Okay. All right. So you so you've won some awards. I'm uh, looking at a long list of awards that you've won. I haven't had interviewed a guest who's had this kind of list, or maybe I just didn't see him in the CV. But this is very impressive. 
<laughs> Can you tell me about these rewards and was there money involved and how has that influenced the course of your career and your and your work? Yeah, sure. So I've, I've been very lucky. I will say one, one thing, at the end of my PhD, I switched to doing a postdoc research position in Princeton. And I was extremely lucky because I got to join this team of scientists working on um, the WMAP satellite, which was a NASA satellite. Is that what's called the Planck team? No, this is the du- the doubly map team. team. Oh, I'm going to ask you about that in the second half of the show. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So anyway, so, so many of these awards were connected to work that I did as part of that team. Um, so some of them were team awards. Some of them were then things that you know uh, early career awards that really arose from from that work. I would say. So I think. Um, uh, you know, I worked hard and 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 did my job, but I, I think that. I, I'm aware that like many, much of that came from this work that I did as a postdoc. Um, and it was a really special experience to be able to join. It was a very small team of scientists and that, that, okay. that okay. gave me experience. I wanted to ask you, what brought you to Princeton? Was there a specific person or an opportunity um, or did you want to come to the U.S. and made it happen? Uh, well, how did that yes. work? So, okay, so I, yeah, I applied. So my advisor, my PhD advisor encouraged me to apply to the United States because actually he'd been himself um, in the States for a postdoc. And he was aware that there were, you know, it's a great opportunity. It's a great way to interact with more people. So he encouraged me to apply. Um, and then I was offered this job working on this this particular project on this NASA satellite. Um, and again, it came from... I, I'd learned this useful skill in my PhD, which meant I could search very quickly through lots of different universe models until I found the best one. Um, so I was brought onto this team or offered a job to work on this team to, to sort of use these particular skills. Um, so um, and there, had, there were two, had two uh, postdoc mentors um, in Princeton who, you know, offered me this job and I went to work with them and as part of this this bigger team as well. Um, so it was this very particular opportunity that, that drew me there. Cool. Um, Are you thinking yeah. of staying in the U.S.? Well, yeah. So now, I mean, now I have, so now I'm back in, I guess I, I left Princeton to come back to the U.K. for a while, but now I'm back in Princeton and that's a permanent position. So I, I plan to stay. Oh, cool. Cool. Yeah. Well, next up, I want to ask you in the second half of the show about some cosmological questions and your research. But uh, first, uh, we have to take a short break. Folks, we'll be right back in 60 seconds after this uh, commercial message. I'm chatting with uh, Professor of Astrophysics, Dr. Joel Dunkley. Stay with us. Hello there, all you fabulous background mode listeners. I'm Kelly Gamont with the Mac Observer, and I just want to say a few words about how you can support all the things we do. If you're thinking about buying something from Apple, Amazon, or Mac Mall, just go to the Mac Observer's homepage where we have a section called Support TMO. Or you can just enter macobserver.com forward slash Apple Store, all one word, and that will take you to our special page for Apple and our other affiliates. If you make a purchase from one of our partners this way, the Mac Observer receives a small compensation for sending business their direction. Pretty cool, right? And you don't pay a penny more. This small fee from our affiliates helps us continue to bring you TMO's daily news, reviews, tips, how-tos, and podcasts like this one. So the next time you're thinking about an online purchase, come to TMO's homepage and support the Mac Observer. Thanks. Back to you, John. We're back. I'm chatting with astrophysicist Dr. Joe Dunkley. 
Okay, I read that your research combines theoretical physics with statistical analysis and uses those models to understand the universe from cosmological observations. Can you explain that to us? Sure, yeah. So so my job is is um, is to basically take images of the sky and turn them into the quantities that describe the, the broad brush parameters or uh, features of our universe. So in particular, I actually look um, at an image of the universe when it was only 400,000 years old. Um, it's this thing called the cosmic microwave background. Um, and it's an image that uh, we can take only with very sensitive telescopes that can look at microwave light. Um, and this I is sort of the aftermath of the Big Bang, right? That's right. Yeah. So so we see it. It's it's basically yeah. After it's light that was created, a kind of in the Big Bang itself, way before any stars were made in the universe, and then deeply redshifted into the microwaves. Exactly. Yeah. The light stretched. Uh, yeah, exactly. It's it's stretched as the universe has grown. And so mm-hmm. right now, that's, it's like a millimeter in wavelength. Um, and so we we make we, we kind of look with very sensitive telescopes at this. It's very faint light and with very subtle features in it. Um, and I don't myself build the telescopes, but I work really closely with colleagues who do. And then my job is to then um, take this data, take these Im- take these images and then try and extract um, information about the properties of the universe from it, because it's kind of a very clean image of the universe because it was um, being captured so young. None of the more complicated, messy physics had happened to it that happened later on. And it, it kind of gives us this really clean way of seeing um, uh, yeah, these, these broad brush features, like what it's made of, how fast it's growing, like where 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 actually cosmic features first came from like why why are we now full of a universe full of galaxies and stuff and we get to see the very initial formation of that so is i kind where, of is, is this where the wilkinson microwave anisotropy probe comes in is this the telescope that's the satellite right, yeah. that's taking these microwave photos it was so we've had this succession of telescopes doing this so doubly map um was up in the was it's was up in the sky, you know, in, in the two, early 2000s. Um, and then another satellite launched after that to do even better called Planck, uh, which I also worked oh, on. Yeah. Okay. But right, yeah, so, but right now I'm using a telescope in Chile on the, you know, on the ground, on the mountain in Chile, um, that's, that's looking at it in more detail because it's got a much bigger dish that you couldn't easily launch in space. It's like a six meter, mm. you know, radio dish, um, which gives us, lets us see this image in kind of finer resolution than, than before. Tell me, what kind of computers and software tools do you use? Do you do the work on your Mac? I saw a picture of your Wikipedia with you on a MacBook Air or a MacBook Pro or something like that. Do you do the work on desktop systems or do you access supercomputers to do this? We access supercomputers. So we, most of us, many of us work from, we have a, we usually have a laptop. I work with a MacBook Pro and others, lots of, lots of my colleagues use either MacBooks or, or Linux machines, um, laptops. But then we connect to a bunch of supercomputers. Mm-hmm. Use, you know, thousands of CPUs, um, computers, you know, to, to run big analysis jobs. And so, um, we will connect to big machines in the States, in Canada, 
um, in the UK, in South Africa, you know, whenever, wherever, <laughs> wherever there's a, um, there's computing time, we use it. And so we use, you know, hundreds to thousands of, of, of computers and combined together in supercomputers. I want to drop into a short subroutine here for my Apple customer listeners. What appeals to you about the MacBook Pro? Um, I love that I can code on it and do my regular life on it. You know, so I, I find it, you know, things that I can, I can, you know, do my keynote presentations. I can do my email. I can do all those things. But Drop then into I can a also, Unix shell too. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I, I, that, that, that balance is, is really great. And a lot of us in astrophysics, you look at go to a conference and, you know, there are people with Linux laptops, but there are also a lot of people with Macs. Cool. Cool. All right. So return from subroutine. <laughs> what what are we discovering over what have we discovered over the last couple of decades about our cosmological or origins? What I'm, what I'm interested in primarily is is the big bang and inflation. Do we do we still believe that there was a big bang followed by an Alan Guth type inflation and then the inflation for some mysterious reasons stopped? Is that still a good model of the universe or are we edging towards something different? Well, it's it may be a good model. I think the 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 idea of the Big Bang. Yes, we now think that this is a good description of what we see. So so we think that you know, fourteen billion years ago there was this thing we call the Big Bang, which was um which was the initial growth of space. We don't yet know exactly what caused that initial growth, um, or what stopped this, it. Oh, what stopped it? That's right. Exactly. Um, so there is this popular model inflation that says that the universe grew extremely fast in the first moments, um, driven by this, this energy field called an, the inflaton. Um, and, and that was responsible to, for actually creating the very first seeds of cosmic structures in the, that first you know, fraction of a second. Um, and then the universe continued to grow. And we find ourselves, you know, with this quite a simple, in one sense, simple universe that's um, where it's kind of amazing. If, if you throw in a set of ingredients, so if you throw in a certain amount of, you know, hydrogen and helium atoms and some rays of light um, and some dark matter particles that we don't yet know what they are. Uh, yeah, I want to get to that. Problem, that's what our yeah. <laughs> so do we think dark matter was there from the beginning? Pretty Any much, yeah, just, just after the beginning. Yeah, we do. So we have reason to believe that because it's kind of a neat neat thing, which is that where we see like lumps, so we think that the cosmic structures we see today came from lumps in the universe made very early on. And the lumps in the atoms seem to trace the lumps in the dark matter as if they were both made at the beginning at the same sort of the same time. So where, where we kind of have a denser region of atoms, we also find that we have denser regions of dark matter as well. They do track could, each other. Could that be, I just, I was just reading about uh, how that might be micro black holes. Any, uh, is that uh, a there are good question or is that a bad question? <laughs> no, no, there might, there might, it's, it's possible that there could have been, um, there could have been black holes, around from a very early time um but i don't they don't they're not needed to explain what we see now so it's kind of it's an idea but not a de not not definite okay. um, um but uh but then but just the, what's amazing is if you just kind of 
insert some little features in the universe at you know within the first second and then you just let gravity you know do its job and run its course then over you know 14 billion years we end up with a universe that looks you know like what we see today so um in one respect it's kind of amazing that with just a handful of ingredients and some initial you know over dense regions of space that you can end up with explaining basically all the large-scale features of the universe are these um, over dense regions of space the result of quantum fluctuations and when the universe was first born well this is yeah this is the this is the best our best idea right now that which i love i love the idea that you know we think that yeah you had quantum fluctuations in and at a kind of apparently empty space and they got imprinted on the exploding universe I think. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's right. So the idea is that like if the universe weren't expanding, you'd have these quantum fluctuations where you could make, you know, lumps of stuff appear and disappear, but they would all just disappear again. But if you do that in a universe that's growing actually faster than even the speed of light, you quickly separate different points in space that had started oh, off together. Cool. And they now communicate they're like out of causal contact they can't you know they don't they don't they're too far apart right this tiny feature becomes you know a real lump in space um that can then grow all right so i'm going to spring a question on you a jackpot question here i was just reading in sky and telescope about two galaxies ngc 1052 that have been detected without dark matter and uh, I, had, I had thought that dark matter was required for a galaxy to form in addition to a massive black hole. Have you read about that? If you haven't, we'll just move on. Yeah. No, I think it's really, I think it's, so I think it's really interesting. Yeah. There, there are these possibilities that, yeah, maybe you have some galaxies without dark matter. And I think there were some really neat ideas about how you could actually make that happen sometimes, not always. Um, if you, for example, had, um, potentially if you had the dark matter and the regular atoms like moving at different speeds in the early universe like you could have sort of displace the atoms and the dark matter in one of those early lumps and end up with something that didn't in the end have dark matter um but we think that if that if if that is the case that it's unusual like most galaxies we see we think have this invisible dark matter you know throughout and surrounding them have um, we detected dark matter in our own Milky Way? Um, so we think it's there. We haven't directed it. Di we haven't detected it directly, but yes, um, we see the gravitational effects of it. It's it's certainly here in our Milky Way. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So we've looked I mean, at the velocities of stars in the galaxy, and we figured out there's extra mass we don't see. We just haven't figured out what it is yet and detected it. Exactly. That's right. And and so we infer invisible stuff by how fast everything else is moving. Um, yeah. And, and, and because gravity, the more the more gravity you have, the more mass something has, the faster it will make something move. So, um, right. yeah, we can see that in, in our own galaxy. And, and, and then we can and then we've seen it. We've long seen it in, in other galaxies around us. They're spinning too fast. So I'm, I want to go back to something you mentioned. Uh, you've you've researched what's what was described to me as extra particles that could have been created when the universe was first born, but maybe don't exist today. What's going on there? I, I haven't not familiar with that. Well, so one thing that we wonder is 
um, there are we know that there are some tiny particles that we do know of, which is neutrino particles. Like we know that there are these, they're, they're very light, tiny weeny particles where, you know, billions are flying through our hands every second. Um, but they're extremely light and they're very hard to detect. Um, and, but we sort of know from particle physics experiments that they exist and that we know that there are three sorts of them. Do we know that but, they have mass? Oh, well, that's the interesting thing. So we know that they must have a mass because of this really cool thing that they actually have these three different flavors, these three types. Mm -hmm. And as they travel through space, they change their flavor as they travel through through space. Um, and it turns out that that's only possible if they actually have a mass of their own. Um, cool. And actually, one of the things I'm trying to do right now with, with our cosmological data is actually weigh the neutrinos, measure their mass using cosmological data um so we're we're actually really excited that perhaps in the coming decade decade we could actually figure out what their mass is um, could, could the mass of the neutrinos play a part in dark matter or are these orthogonal issues they are probably they're mostly orthogonal but they could be connected so we know that the neutrinos the, the three regular neutrinos can't be heavy enough to explain oh. um, all of the dark matter. I'm, yeah, so okay. what am I saying? They, they have to be pretty light, and they're so light that dark matter would look different if it was all made of neutrinos. It's not a good, it doesn't explain kind of cosmic structures very well. Um, there is a fascinating possibility that it's possible that there are additional neutrinos that we haven't come across yet. Um, and this, this is one of the things we're searching for is extra particles that we haven't seen are these like supersymmetric partners to the current neutrinos or something else uh, not so they can have i think called a sterile neutrino um which is one that doesn't doesn't you know neutrinos barely interact but these sterile neutrinos would interact even less um and it's possible <laughs> yeah it's, it, it's possible that a really heavy one could be the the regular dark matter oh cool. yeah you yeah. have so much fun what it a wonderful fun. time you're having it's really fun. Yeah. And I do love that we're actually now in this position of kind of, you know, yeah, using the whole universe as like a particle physics laboratory. Um, it's, you know, it lets you do experiments that you just can't do on Earth. So we only have a few minutes left, and I want to close with an extension from the universe that you study and ask you um, if you're familiar with multiverse theory. Um from my reading, and I'm just an amateur, um, the multiverse is a f fallout from string theory. Is that right? Well, yeah. So there are different kind. There are different ideas about what the multiverse is. So um, one one idea of the multiverse is that different parts of the universe could have begun inflating at different times let's say the inflation night model is correct and and that's and that um yeah this, this energy of this inflaton field start made the universe begin to grow that could have happened slightly differently in different parts of you know space time and could have given rise to kind of different pocket different whole pockets of universes each of them with their own kind of physical properties mm -hmm. um, and so that's one way one kind of way that so we don't need string theory to support that. 
You don't need string. No, that's right. So string theory can, you can, if you try, so string, again, string theory tries to bring together quantum mechanics and relativity. Mm. Kind of need some, we need something new to explain what happened at the very beginning of the universe because our physics, current physics breaks down. So string theory could be this, this explanation. Um, uh, but it's, but you can kind of come up with this idea of a multiverse, even in the idea of, of inflation. Um, lots of people think that the multiverse isn't a nice, it's is very unattractive. And they use that as in a way of saying that maybe inflation is not appealing, right? Because it doesn't naturally produce just the universe that we see. Well, the um, problem is that it's hard to detect these other universes. And if you can't detect them, that's kind of anti-scientific, right? Yeah, but even more so, one can also make the argument that um, if there are all of these different universes, the chance of having one that looks just like ours, that has the properties that ours has, then becomes vanishingly unlikely. Um, so it becomes... Yeah, and we're talking about the anthropic principle here. Yeah. 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 It's, so it's... Um, it's Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. If you really want to have something be a scientific theory, you want to be able to test it. Um, right. Some of these ideas are testable. Um, uh but certainly, I think this this it's guiding how we're trying to come up with those ideas of what could have happened at, at the beginning. It's a fun feel. I read about it all the time, and you yeah. get to do it. It's amazing. So yeah, no, okay. <laughs> I want to close with uh, one final question. Do you have any career advice for young theoretical physicists? Any sage counsel you'd like to pass on? Well, I, I think the the most important thing is is to do something you enjoy. Um, you know, of course, you've got to be driven by the big questions, but you've got to enjoy the day-to-day work of it. Um, and so, you know, the, again, that, for me, that that ends up being enjoying the questions, but enjoying the actual practical, you know, coding, puzzling out data, those kind of things. Yeah. So as a theoretical physicist, I would p- pick the thing that where you like doing the thing that you're actually doing all day, every day, because you're going to be doing a lot of it. Cool, cool. Well, we're going to have to bring the show to a close. Um, so we're running out of time and I want to thank you so much for joining us. Tell the listeners how they can contact you if they wish, especially uh, those young students who might have questions. Yeah. Find me on Twitter and ask me questions there and I'll be thrilled to answer them. All right. Well, thank you again for joining me. It's been a delightful discussion. Thank you for sharing. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Listeners, I'm glad you came by. I hope you enjoyed the show with astrophysicist, Dr. Joe Dunkley. You've been listening to the Mac Observer's Background Mode. We'll see you again next week. Thank you.